Hey, unfuckers, welcome into show notes. It's good to be with everybody this week. I'm here with the the one, the only 99. 99, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Little little crush today. A lot going on. Mm. A lot going on in our other world. Mm-hmm. But coming together. You good? Yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. You ready to, like, for this? You ready to make this happen? Of course. Lots of feedback this week. Always ready. I'm also not the only 99 by virtue of the name. Mm. I think she's dead, though. The other. That doesn't mean anything. The one, the only living? The only living 99? That feels just me. How about the best 99? I don't know her personally, and I don't want to make that judgment. Yeah, I think she's dead, though. So? She could have been, like, a world-class humanitarian. Maybe. And you're not? Not world-class. Oh, my Maybe, world. like, state-class. Or, mm. like, this office-class. Okay. Okay. I'm just being realistic, you know? That's fair. Um, well, my favorite 99. Thank that's you. That's for damn sure. And I know your favorite 99 as well. So, over on YouTube, we got a bunch of good things going on. If you have not yet subscribed to the channel, please do so. We've got some promotions going on to uh, really get things kicking and running over there. So, uh, as much support as we can get. We did, as I mentioned, I think last week, we crossed the threshold for the minimum amount of views and subscribers to get into the creators class to be monetized. So hopefully that will help take some pressure off the unfuckers that have to support us over here and on the podcast and all those other places as we can kind of get into that circle, which is wonderful. So I just wanted to thank everybody again for helping us get this off the ground. We have 50 videos posted already, which is kind of surreal. And I went back and I reviewed some of the initial ones, and it's just amazing how bad the editing was. I mean, how just preposterous the editing was. My apologies for that. For all of you who signed on early and struggled through that along with me, uh, thank you. It's very kind of you. Uh, The new ones are getting a little bit better, a little bit better every time. So we're making that happen. Uh, And obviously, if you're watching this on YouTube, then you are part of helping us grow and, uh, and get found out there. So thank you. Thank you, everybody, for that. We have a couple new memberships. We have uh, some donations that came in, but just as a reminder, we're member-funded. So before the monetization on YouTube kicks in or any of the other stuff, which is going to be really slow and painful for a very long time, but we're committed to it for the long run, just remember the only way we can do this is through membership. So if you haven't done that yet or if you haven't supported us with purchasing our native roasted coffee or just you know tipping us at the end of an episode that you like, Maybe you'd you know, like to go in and buy some merch in our merch store. All of these things are available to help us continue to grow this show and bring you first-class content each and every week. Now, this week for the podcast, it's going to be sort of, um, I guess, sort of like the third installment. This isn't really a series. We, we, went, uh, we had the oligarchy piece. Uh, then last week, we had my extremely meandering piece about uh, the patriarchy. And there's something that kept coming up in those two videos that some people were kind of kind of responding to in a in a curious and kind of negative way. And that is the whole concept of creating a better political class. So we're going to be talking about that, but we're going to be talking about that in the context of progressivism and what that means right now and what's happening on the left end of the spectrum in terms of uh, national candidates. So. That's that. It's going to be a shorter piece coming out this weekend, but I felt like it was important to kind of tie this whole little moment up with a bow and uh, and move finish on from there. Finish the hat. And finish the hat. It's time to finish the hat. Look, 
I made a hat where there never was a hat. Look, I made a hat. Where there never was a hat. So that's what I got about that. And with that, let's get into some headlines. So these are, uh, there's one criminal justice update here, but the others are, are mostly economic focused. The first is actually something that ties into something one of our core unfuckers named Dan M has been writing uh, back and forth with us ab- about for a couple of years now. Dan M has, uh, is an aficionado on car culture and uh, mass transportation and sort of how uh, in the United States we have taken car culture for granted, built around it, and in doing so kind of left us in an, a social, a climate, and economically kind of tenuous place because it's 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 a bad model for a number of reasons going forward. So with that and sort of building on what Dan Emma said, and hopefully someday I'll be able to actually get to like a full episode about car culture and the, and the dangers of it. Uh, there's a Washington Post article that talks about the, even though we have easing inflation and we're finally putting the supply chain back together, so semiconductors are flowing more regularly, which means that we can actually build these cars that require sophisticated computers these days. More Americans are unable to afford a car. So you have rising interest rates. You've got car manufacturers that are actually backing away from uh, building economy cars. And they're building more of the luxury cars and the higher end models. Obviously, there's a big push to EVs and that comes with a, a different cost thresholds. So now car ownership, even though we've built our economy and our society around car culture, is becoming increasingly out of, you know, out of reach for several younger people in particular. And that just kind of dovetails with what's happening in the housing market. So as housing gets more out of reach, as interest rates rise and the inventory is, even though we have a lot of inventory, uh, new construction starts are down because of the legacy supply chain issues, because of where we're at in this weird period of the economic recovery and or about to collapse. I can't even tell anymore. Um, So you've got cars and homes increasingly out of reach for uh, average Americans in this country and what that pretends for the economy. So that's uh, in the Washington Post, but there's been a lot of buzz about it actually in DC. Uh, And speaking of DC, the next one that I'm linking is actually a link to uh, an announcement for a committee meeting in the House. So this is an energy and commerce committee meeting. And one of the reasons I wanted to link it is because this is a bipartisan announcement that they're gonna be tackling broadband. And this is a callback to our digital redlining episode. In that episode, we were talking about the efforts under the the infrastructure bill, but also some of the things that the FCC had done to fill in the gaps after it punted on its responsibilities under Ajit Pai and uh, left a lot of people out in the cold, especially in poor areas, poor urban areas, and then very remote rural areas in particular. Those were the two areas that were hardest hit by the FCC's decision not to essentially offer broadband as a as a universal service right in this country and an economic right and and obviously as a as a point of economic justice in this country. So we've allocated a, just a ton of money. I mean, tens of billions of dollars to fixing this. There is a House committee. The reason I'm linking this is because most of the House committee hearings that we see on, let's say on YouTube or you'll catch it on, um, you know, they'll clip it up and they'll put it in the headline news on TV. Most of what you see out of these committee hearings is posturing 
by politicians that are looking to score some points. And it's it's kind of on the big stuff. So on the Republican side of late, it's all about Hunter Biden. It's about the culture wars. It's about economic development. It's about uh, welfare spending. And you'll see that a lot of the House members will use these opportunities to grandstand, cut these, their staff will cut these videos up and they'll repurpose them online. Then there are the committee hearings where they're just doing the work and they're looking at normal appropriations. This is one of those where you're not gonna see or hear a lot about it, but I'm very interested to see, and you can log in through, you can log in through Congress, but you can also probably get it on C-SPAN, and I'm gonna be looking for the results of this uh, to see how the rollout's going. What are we doing about this broadband economic justice and social justice that needs to happen to connect the rest of the country? And then the third economic piece I wanted to point to is actually something that came out of the White House. You can find a number of number of articles and and go down the the, the rabbit hole on obviously the the um, on what's happening with the debt ceiling. The White House released a statement that pulls together uh, the Council of Economic Advisors, a couple of think tanks, but also what the Congressional Budget Office anticipates will happen under short term, medium term, and what they call a protracted breach of the debt ceiling. What's so fascinating about this, and here's here's the scenario that the CBO and the Council of Economic Advisors have figured if they go into some sort of protracted, which is multiple weeks leaning into months, debt ceiling crisis. It would cost the United States 8.3 million jobs, reduce real GDP by 6.1%, which is, that's depression era type of statistics and it would cause the stock market to plummet by 45%. That's COVID level plummeting. So that's what they're, that's what's on the table. That's what the Republicans are trying to do. It's really important to remember all of the bluster and all of the bullshit on both sides of the aisle about the debt ceiling crisis. We do have an exploding debt and it is the cost of insuring that debt through the markets is increasing because of the debt crisis, because of the debt ceiling crisis. And the interest on that debt is increasing as well because everything is more expensive. But we can still very comfortably manage the debt. The part to remember about this that is so, so important is that this is not about future state spending. This is not a negotiation. This is paying for what we are already obligated to and have laid out. You can't put the genie back into the bottle. The, re the debt ceiling shouldn't even exist. And there's actually some very productive talks about just the Biden administration thinking that they can get around this in the future, maybe even legislate it away, which would be a very helpful thing because it's it has no place in the modern era because the money is spent. So you're not talking about a budgetary move to cap future spending or fund different programs or even attacking entitlements or defense spending or how whatever your whatever your you know particular uh, whatever B is in your bonnet right it's not about that going forward because that's why we have elections that's why we have administrations come in with executive priorities and that's why we have a legislative agenda that determines the path forward economically this is about what we already did and a lot of this debt by the way a lot of the new debt came under the Trump administration and rightfully so because it was at the height of the pandemic and we went very, very deep, way deeper into debt during that time than we had before in a shortened period of time. So this is paying for the shit that we've already obligated ourselves to. That's the thing to remember. But take a look at the CBO's analysis of that because it's pretty frightening.
And the last headline I wanted to share gets back into criminal justice. This is from The Intercept, and this is about Kim Gardner in St. Louis. She's a progressive district attorney in St. Louis, has just resigned. And uh, I'm just gonna read uh, one key section from the article. Thursday's announcement makes Gardner the fourth reform prosecutor elected in recent years to leave office following former Florida State Attorney Aramis Ayala, who faced attacks from then Republican Governor Rick Scott over her refusal to seek the death penalty in a case, former San Francisco DA Chesa Boudin, who was recalled last year, and Kim Fox, the prosecutor in Cook County, Illinois, which includes Chicago, who announced last month she would not run for re-election. So as great as the trend was to get some progressive prosecutors and progressive DAs uh, into office, which led to cash bail reform, which is a whole other subject that we shouldn't probably take on independently. Uh, there's so much confusion about cash bail. It's it's kind of stunning, but that's the obfuscation on the side of the Republicans to, you know, just continue with a very, very destructive pra practice to the, to the poor and the middle class in this country. But uh, progressive prosecutors sort of coming, have come into fashion to deal with the crisis of mass incarceration at, at the moment that it happens, at the moment that it all kind of begins. And it's been one of the better criminal justice trends that we've had in this country for decades. The fact that they're coming under attack is because crime still exists and people see with their eyes that certain criminals aren't being punished or there will always be that outlier story of somebody that was released and uh, that should have maybe had bail, that was released from prison, then then commits a crime. Statistically, it is so improbable that new violent crimes are committed by people that are have just gotten out of jail or maybe have been uh, under charges and are, are waiting or under indictment and are awaiting prosecution. Statistically, it just really never happens, but it makes for great headline news. And that headline news really gins up the base, especially around election time, to come after these progressive DAs who have their work cut out for them. Because in the criminal justice system, you know, it's all about law and order. And it is all about punishing criminals because that's the lens through which we view criminal justice in this country almost exclusively when you're talking about coming at it from the, the right end and the moderate end of, of Democrats as well. I know a ton of Democrats in New York, so-called liberals on social issues and economic issues that are dead set against any sort of bail reform, that are dead set against any sort of criminal justice reform because they still see things through that Bacaria lens that the state exists strictly to punish criminals, that we should not be looking at uh, we shouldn't be looking at rehabilitation. We shouldn't be looking at any social justice reforms in the criminal justice sector that everybody should just stay out of it. So that's a troubling trend. It's worth taking a look at that in The Intercept because they do a great job on all that type of reporting. And that's what I got for headlines this week. And with that, 99, let's get into some uh, specific feedback from, from the episode. I'll kick it off uh, because this one's about Tucker said the best part of Tucker's firing, this is from Inigo C. The best part of Tucker's firing is his non-compete. Him and Murdoch fighting over it is going to be good eating, real good eating. Regarding Gnome, with the sole exception of Mr. Rogers, there are no heroes and expecting anyone to be spotless is absurd in my opinion. Even Mother Teresa is controversial. Instead, I urge measuring people by comparing their positive impact against their negative impact in terms of days really puts in perspective who's deserving of support and who's deserving of opposition. 
Uh, so thank you, Inigo. That helps kick off what I think is going to be, again, we had some very spirited comments in the in the vein of the very spirited conversation that 99 and I had and everybody uh, weighed in with some really great stuff. So I will kick it over to 99 to bring us in on some of the, the meatier parts of the discussion. I can't get my phone to go in landscape mode. You should get an Android. Mm, that sounds awful. Okay, there we go. So Ben, the surfy, surfing hippie diesel mechanic said, you mentioned something in the post-show musings in our latest episode on Chomsky that I wanted to touch on, separating the art from the artists and the people doing good work in shitty industries and for shitty companies. This is an issue that I wrestle with on a daily basis. I'm a heavy duty diesel mechanic and I often worry what my kids, nieces and nephews will think of me as our province sinks into the ocean as it gets pummeled by hurricanes year after year. I struggle with the guilt of never being able to offset the carbon emissions, pollution, oil spills, and everything else my work contributes to, but I've taken steps to use my skills for good. I quit my job at a caterpillar, caterpillar, <laughs> at a cater, Jesus, at a caterpillar dealership for years ago to take a position with our provincial government repairing snowplow trucks and road building equipment, doing meaningful and necessary work in my community instead of making assholes above me rich. I've joined the union executive at my new job and will be fighting for my union brothers and sisters at the negotiating table this fall for the first time. Wish me luck. What an extraordinary story. It's just an amazing story. What's Caterpillar? Is that a company? Yes. I know what that is. Heavy equipment. Mm. You know, all the big yellow pieces of equipment. Oh, cat. Yeah. It's usually Caterpillar. Whoa. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. There you go. Well, this is an unbelievable story. You know, one of the things we were talking about last week, remember, was the the well-intentioned person with the science degree that goes to work for Monsanto because they're the biggest employer in that particular region and it's they want to stay close to home, take care of their ailing parents, whatever the circumstances are. These situations play out all over the country where people feel locked in as well-intentioned as they might want to be they feel locked in to their circumstances. And typically, you know, the the very callous response to that is, well, why don't you just move and go to where you think you can make an impact or do something better or change your circumstances in your life? Well, that's just not always an option for people. And it's a really lazy approach to that discussion because some people are proud of their community. Some people set down roots. Some people just don't want to leave where they are or they're not economically able to leave where they are because it's kind of expensive to uproot, start a new community, do all the things that you have to do to to move on and and just throw caution to the wind, especially, you know, after you've started a family and you've got all these other obligations. So I'm not saying that everybody can be Ben, the surfing hippie diesel mechanic, but it's really inspiring to know that he thought enough about it to throw caution to the wind and to do something more meaningful and uh, not be part of the problem. That type of like opt out and then opt in to a more human approach to work is is so admirable. And I and I don't want to put it up on a pedestal like, you know, everybody should be like that because some people just don't have the time to think about it because they're so busy. They're crushed with debt or whatever the circumstances. But this one, what a happy story. Just what a great anecdote, right? Yeah, I think we talked a lot about this in our Amazon episodes as well as our vegan episode, probably. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, that debate came up. I think it's case by case. If you're like the top brass at one of these companies making the decision, I'm not going to feel sorry for you if you're (laughs) intentionally harming people or the environment. But if there's nothing in your area for your skill set, being a mechanic, it's not like you can do remote work. Right. You know, it that 
work from home should have op- opened up opportunities across all industries, but now with all the return to office nonsense, or work, you know, it's unnecessary for them to be in person. You know, we're closing some of those opportunities for people to like maybe get out of a, a job that they don't love in an industry or a, for a company they don't love. But yeah, did we some, read that stat or did I read it independently that ninety percent have returned to work now? Is that I don't is think that we, something talked we talked about, about it. No, yeah. I think I read that, which is interesting because in New York, we're sort of the, every other real estate story about New York is how there's entire floors of skyscrapers that are sitting empty. And it's a, and it's a very big bubbling up problem in New York because of the overvalued real estate market there. And the fact that there's just not enough occupancy going in into a lot of these places that at some point chickens are going to come home to roost on the balance sheets and it's going to be a huge problem for these real estate investors and for the city that's looking to collect tax revenue, it's looking to collect the added income that comes in from taxes on people working in the city. So there's a there's a burgeoning crisis in New York, but it seems like just by the pure sheer numbers across the country that most people have had to return to work. And like you said, whether whether they need to or not. Yeah, because bosses don't understand that they can't micromanage people or they understand that they can't micromanage people from home. Mm -hmm. So, you know, who's going to make them look better if they're not making other people look bad. It's kind of the reason for it. There's no other reason. Yeah. I mean, I think about it a lot. You know, we have a remote culture in in our other life, a predominantly remote culture. And, um, you know, there is a level, there's a, there's a trust that you have to develop. You have to work at that. There's a, there's an accountability trust that you have to develop with people, but there are so many tools in place to track performance and uh, to have measurements of accountability that people should really be as autonomous as they possibly can, assuming that you've got accountability measures in place and that there's a, enough co- uh, communication among team members. It's definitely a challenge and certain industries don't lend itself to that, I get it. But if you can, for us, I think it's been a real positive, certainly with people's personal lives, with their family lives. And when it really comes down to it, I think we're kidding ourselves with the eight hour workday that people work eight hours a day. It's just, you don't. Most people can like get the stuff done that they need to get done in a a handful of hours during the day and still manage their lives and and still feed their pets and take a walk and do whatever, you know? I mean, it's, it's all possible. The amount of time, the amount of downtime that happens in a full office is just kind of extraordinary. I mean, there's been so many papers and, and research articles written on this stuff. I mean, it's it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, and you save time on commuting. Yeah, lots of time, lots so, of money. you yeah, know, that's huge. Instead of starting at nine, you can start at seven when you would have to commute and then be done at four, realistically. Okay. So, but, yeah. you know, to, to this point, um, yeah, I mean, more people should have been able to do what Ben did, but unfortunately... You know, corporate culture is corporate culture, but I'm glad Ben was able to make the change for for himself. Super cool. Super cool. Uh, next up, we have Cam L. Max. Camel. <laughs> oh, yeah. Camel. Max, you may have discussed general systems theory in previous episodes, but I found the description here a bit meandering and lacking a point or plan. GST is a framework created by biologists and sociologists doesn't seem to be meant for analyzing economic systems. If you can elaborate on it, I'm open to it, but your brief call for a moneyless society seemed more apt for a reference to Marx's capital than GST. Okay, we'll hold that point. 
Second, you mentioned a professional political class, which I see how one could conflate that with the swamp. However, it seems like you're describing what Lenin called a vanguard party, I believe. One that requires members to be educated on what is currently revolutionary theory and geared towards serving the people, not capital. What you're saying could be different, but I believe it's mentioned in State and Re Revolution. Let me know your thoughts. This is why I love our brilliant listeners. So to your first point about general systems theory, general systems theory is a an idea that originated in the, the field of science and biologists specifically has extended to sociologists about how we can create better cultures and better, uh, better communication between uh, existing cultures and breaking down cultural norms. And I think it's only the next natural evolutionary moment to consider these things within the context of our politics and our economics, specifically because of the root issue that is that comes from the biology field. And that is that everything in this in the earth and the ecosystem as we have been able to enjoy it as humans for as long as we've been on the planet is interrelated and interdependent. And if we can take some of those elements and bring that into political and economic theory and realize that pure capitalism, I won't go down the argument that what we don't have is not capitalism, but the pure understanding of capitalism to create surplus capital out of labor, to keep it within the moneyed class, to reduce regulations and let the market fix any systemic issues that arise from it is no longer a viable economic model because of the biological consequences that capitalism has had on the earth. So that's where I see general system theory coming into the political and economic mainstream if we can sort of harness the, the best parts about it and begin to break down the patriarchal elements that have existed within culture and within economics uh, and begin to uh, take away some of the underpinnings of what we've framed as capitalism over the last, you know, 150 years or so that has led to the destruction of the natural world and certain economic orders, then we can start to have a more elevated discussion about what this might look like. And that's why I went as far as to say, one example for me is the privatization of the fossil fuel in industry and the energy industry in this country. Because unless we take hold of the, the energy power and everything that goes into it, we are just simply going to allow these companies to run out fossil fuels until the very last penny can be can be wrung out of, of it because it's available, it's cheap, and we already have the systems in place. We're never gonna be able to move to a clean energy future unless we actually take hold of the, of the entire energy sector and take it and basically nationalize it, take it out of the hands of the private companies. Remember, we have over 600 companies that distribute energy in this country. And that's why you have you have such a difference in the in how it's deployed across uh, different communities throughout throughout the country. It's it's kind of absurd and it's obscene. It's one of those things where like most other industrialized nations have been able to offer healthcare coverage, not insurance, but coverage to all of their citizens and they you know, the the economy still works and they're able to to do stuff in the world and nothing really broke down. But we don't see it that way because we're just institutionalized into thinking that this is the way, this is the only way it is because that's the way it's been done. Well, unless you can go in and completely take over the healthcare system and completely take over the energy system, we're not gonna break down the structural barriers that already exist because capitalism has set them up to take the surplus capital out of these sectors when they should really be seen as a right. 
So that's what I was talking about, about taking the next step from a general systems theory, because it contemplates the planet. It takes the it takes the profit equation out of the mix. It contemplates the planet and says, what's the best next step that needs to happen in order to preserve the natural world? Because that surplus capital that's derived from the energy sector, as an example, simply goes into the pockets of the investors that start it, right? That that own that own the equity in energy production. It's a ridiculous way to run and organize an economy. And it's only because the people that really built this country, the industrialists that built it, happened to be oil barons. Just because it worked for them doesn't mean it works for us. Now, in terms of the professional political class, I am going to hold Cam on addressing this much further because that's gonna be kind of the central theme of the episode that's gonna come out this weekend. So I appreciate you teeing it up in such a brilliant way and uh, stay tuned for more. And then SB Jones. Uh, this episode brought me back to thinking about probably one of my favorite people in history. Even though the more I learn about them, the more flawed I believe they have proven to be. I still think they're one of the better presidents we've had, and that's Teddy Roosevelt. I'd argue we could use another round of Teddy Roosevelt-style trust busting. Simple as? It's as simple as that as it, as it, as it is complicated. Yeah. Truly. Truly. I mean, we have to trust bust a lot of people. I mean, if you're just going to look at TR, so TR is the president, I've told you this before, that I've studied more than any other president. Um, we have an episode on it. Hmm? We have an episode on it. On TR? From Bull Moose to... Oh, oh talking about the roots of progressivism, yeah. I think I, I touched on, but I didn't really go a uh, deep dive of all the, the problematic parts of Teddy's life and the way that he ran things. And uh, we, we did touch on it in actually the Carter episode. He was a little, like, how duplicitous he was in the Panama Canal negotiations, the fact that he was, I mean, basically ginned up any excuse to go to war, his time with the Rough Riders, which is... I'm going to of... challenge you to not say ginned up for like 20 minutes. Why? You say it all the time. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, when you talk as often as I do, you're going to come back to certain phrases. I you know, know, but we just got to, we yeah. all keep off, we all have to learn and grow. Okay. All right. I'm cha it's a challenge. It's not with a With all the things you don't want me to say that I've built up over my lifetime and then now phrases that aren't even problematic but I just say too much it's really really difficult for telling you not to say inappropriate things I know but you have a lot of you have a lot of linguistic rules for me to follow it's not a rule it's an offering okay all right we'll find me something better to say than ginned up and I'll work it in I've, it's a thing I've never heard until you so I'm sure oh. there are many hmm. ginning up the base you said it 10 minutes ago. Yeah. Okay. And now. So Teddy was really problematic. TR was, um, well, TR was kind of an asshole. I mean, he was, and, and I think if he was dropped in today, into today's society, he would, uh, well, he'd probably be a very successful podcaster and pundit. He, he loved to, he loved to talk and he was very aggressive. But um, the trust busting was interesting. It's like this, this strain in the Roosevelt clan that, between he and his cousin, they were not afraid to go after, and we can have a debate as to why this was, but they weren't afraid to go after the powerful and the elite in this country. It's a really, really positive attribute that he that he had. He wasn't as successful with trust busting as people actually give him credit for. Taft was more successful, but a lot of that was because TR loosened the cap and you know created the, the circumstances for it because it does take a long time to do that. But do we need a little bit of that? Oh boy, I mean, wh where do we begin? We talked about the tech sector, we talked about energy, we talked about breaking up the insurance monopolies. I mean, 
Bernie goes on and on and on about this and has for, for, for years, and he's right. And that is kind of what it requires. But that's why I go back to the oligarchy episode that at this point in time, even TR would be flummoxed by just how much progress the moneyed class has made in owning every single corner of the political economy, the real economy, and everything in between. And that's why it's it it starts. Yes, I'd love to to say that you know a very strong president who has both houses with a uh, filibuster-proof majority in the Senate could do things like this and get that done. But uh, I just don't see that happening until we get money out of politics. So it's it's all it's all related to me. So yeah, but love me some TR. Would love to. I could talk about TR all day long. Anybody that wants to talk about it, I'm, I'm game. Now over to John C. First, I want to say that y'all have been hitting it out of the park recently. Fantastic content of late. And 99, it's really impressive to hear you reach your Super Saiyan. What are we thinking that is? Like an, uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's specific to anime, but it's like a, like an evolution and like a. Like the, the transfer, the hero's transformation. Yeah, like it's like you reach like a the, level. That's neat. my layman's term because I don't really know neat. or my layman's explanation. The show notes takeover was gold and your discussion on the relative forms of language and the weird way we've decided that certain terms have, quote, masculine or feminine connotations was wonderful. I don't know why that should have been such an eye opener for me. But like Max, a basic white guy, I have a lot of learning to do. Now, uh, goes on to talk a little bit more about this. This is uh, John gives a an anecdote about somebody that had moved into the neighborhood who happens to be, let's just say, uh, slightly toxic. And John says, we as a family talk about it. We parents are progressive and both consider ourselves feminist, but we feel hopeless in the face of YouTube, TikTok, and the like, whose algorithms lead these boys and men down deep, dark rabbit holes, reinforcing the misogyny and perceived fragility of masculinity. If the internet has done one thing, it's created platforms for the ever-increasing objectification and degradation of women. I'm at a loss as to how we can counteract this horrible tsunami of hatred and violence. I do have one idea though, perhaps teachers should start assigning homework using TikTok and require students to add accounts and watch videos that would counterbalance these negative accounts and add depth to the students' algorithms. On that last point, and then I wanna throw the earlier point to 99, it's a it's a slippery slope, you know, watching my kids still going through school. Um, my eldest is in college and I'm seeing how she really interacts more with social media that college professors seem to be more inclined to do this type of work because I think that the first of all there it's a different liability set the and the kids are older they're adults and they're able to I think have these conversations and have this interaction on a different level when it comes when you get down the funnel a little bit I think the only issue with introducing more social media platforms into the classroom which on balance is a really good idea because you want to connect with kids and we have to bring more technology into the classroom. But there's more that we don't know about it. And there's and there I think there's so many more trap doors in that that older people navigating social media and trying to teach through the lens of that in the classroom might be very tricky and and lead to more problems than it's trying to actually cure. So I, I don't know that we would be or that our that the teaching profession would be capable of creating like really fine lines for that unless there are dedicated TikTok channels to that that are just 
kind of whitelisted and I don't I don't even know how that would look technologically, but we're so far behind what the tech providers are doing and just introducing more ways to get into the classroom and into the into young people's minds, I think would be I think we'd constantly be behind the eight ball and trying to fix that. But I, I hear you. I hear you. It's very difficult. But the, the reason I want to throw this back to 99 is because, you know, I'd struck sort of an optimistic note about the next generation in the end of the the last piece. And 99 said, you know, I wouldn't go that far. Like, yes, I too am hopeful, but I'm not really waiting around for Gen Z's kids to fix everything because what you see is a lot of the young people getting radicalized now in the way that John's talking about here. There is a whole world that that I can't see and I don't know and I don't know what's happening to these kids, uh, but that's certainly where it's being fed from and we don't know how to get our hands around it. Yeah, I mean, it's like the PragerU episode, but the takes whatever, what Mandy quoted recently, 30 minutes to radicalize someone. And just like any other generation, Gen Z is not perfect and they're not going to be the solution writ large. Mm-hmm. It'll have to be the people doing the work just like your generation and my generation are. Yeah. You, now, you don't fuck with TikTok, right? No. We talked about that. I don't want China tracking me. Why? I don't want America tracking me. I don't want anyone tracking me. They all are. I barely like giving my location to my roommate. Do you, but you, so you're you're a curiosity because you don't really do a lot of social media, do you? I don't have any. I mean, I have like a burner account. I have a burner Instagram to run our stuff, but I don't have anything. Do you spend any time on it? Like just I spend time on Instagram. Like you do. looking at, you know, artists or whatever. And I look at Instagram Reels, so it's basically TikTok, mm-hmm. you know. And then my roommate shows me TikToks on her phone. Yeah, um, but yeah, I don't have any personal social media, not because I'm superior, but because it's bad for my mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think TikTok is uh, it's kind of, it's, it's very entertaining, but it's kind of, it's, I don't know, there's a lot of weird shit on there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to, my, my my youngest is definitely has more, I don't even want to call it an issue, but is definitely more tethered to it and in need of it than my eldest. But my eldest, you know, we kind of went through that period as well. And then as she got older and she got a little bit more into the world, it began to matter less. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a kid, you know, like, really, what are you doing? You're watching TV or you're watching movies or you're hanging out with your friends mm-hmm. and just like when we were younger, you'd make up dances together. Now they just do that and they film it and they post it online. I mean, it's all the same thing. It's just what else are they going to do? Life's boring when you're a teenager. There's nowhere to go. You don't have any money. You you know, you might have a job, but that's boring. (laughs) Like, so what else is there to do? I I get it. I mean, she's not like in trouble. (laughs) Like, it's not like she's like, you know, pale from not seeing the sun because she's on her phone, you know? So I think she'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's just all the stuff that, you know, they've definitely seen a ton more stuff than I ever saw by that age. Yeah, like, maybe even by now. Like, I mean, it, it, like lewd things? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they've been, just been exposed to language and, and lewd graphics and whatever it is. I mean, they've they've seen, and, and I know people are obsessed with the destruction of innocence and really what does that mean? But there is age appropriateness to, you know, to be, see things because you, you really, you actually can't work it through your, your young brain. But I don't. I don't know ultimately how it's going to manifest. I. I don't know as much because I have girls. I don't know as much about what's happening to young men on these platforms. 
Yeah, I mean, well, I, there's two two things. One, if anyone is saying TikTok is destroying innocence, they've never met uh, anyone who was a child who had like an older sibling who, you know, had porn or they found their parents porn or they just talk about it. I mean, when you get to like at least I'd say 10 is like an age where kids kind of start talking. You start puberty. Like it's not TikTok's fault. There were analog things. Mm -hmm. You know, there were magazines, there were VHSs. You know, now it's just on your phone. It's no different. Has, I mean, there's a whole other debate about the accessibility to porn and how that's affected sexuality and the expectation of people. Like, that's a whole different philosophical debate. Mm -hmm. But TikTok's not destroying people's innocence. Um, and, I mean, yeah, the Andrew Tatification of young people, mm. I don't think, I mean, it's an, it's an epidemic, but I, I, we're not pandemic status yet. The reach is broad, but I don't think, I don't, I mean, it's what, it's what any of these fucking misogynist guys have been doing. He just hit a note with some people. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't think it's, I think it's scary because it happened quickly, but it, it doesn't surprise me. And I don't think it's like, I don't think it's any different than what we've seen in the past. It's just easier to get. So moving on here, we've got Nathan S., who is um, frequently and kindly critical of some of our takes. And we have a very good repartee. But if we go down, send it a, a rather long email, but uh, there's a piece down there I highlighted 99 if you want to read that. Sure. So Nathan said, as you continue to grow your podcast and look towards the solutions of the future, I hope you consider exploring the context of the individuals that you're so quick to vilify as they are often humans like you and I, and trying to do their best while going through complex challenges within. Some examples are Bill, Bill Maher and Jamie Dimon. I understand your disagreements with their perspective. When you attack them as humans, it hurts the credibility of the show. I guess my point is, there is no perfect person. We all have different views of right and wrong. The personal nature of the attacks, such as on Pete Buttigieg and Governor Hochul, impact the credibility of the research you do as it takes on the view of bias, or worse yet, vengeance. Yeah, so again, what I would say to that is that we're talking about people in positions of power, the whole public figure type of argument. My critique of Buttigieg, as an example, was very, very specific to the, the role that he played in dismantling Bernie's campaign. Small role, but a deliberate role. And he went on the offensive, and he himself was personally assailing the character and the ideas of the person that he said was responsible for, in, that inspired him to get into politics. So if ever there was a disingenuous public figure, in my estimation, it's Pete Buttigieg. He's the definition of it. I don't think he's as destructive and mean-spirited as many others are, but is he duplicitous? Absolutely. So to the extent that I assailed his character, it was within the context of his, of his job function and the roles that he played in two specific circumstances. One, undoing Bernie's campaign. And two, as the transportation secretary, something that I believe him to be wholly unqualified for. And it became ex exceedingly clear that he was just placating the donor class of the people that he was actually supposed to be overseeing and regulating. Governor Hochul, I did not assail her character personally in the least, but her actions, which I figured, uh, by my estimation, through the lens of what's happening to Native people in the in New York State, 
is horrific. I mean, just absolutely horrific. Just go back and listen to the two uh, Hokel episodes. And do I do I say you should go fuck yourself? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if I met her on the street and she was, you know, getting a bagel and a cup of coffee and had nothing to do with, you know, oppressing people and this, I wouldn't have that type of reaction. But as the governor of this state, is she more destructive to the people, to the native people in New York State than even Cuomo was, who was who was no walk in the park? Absolutely. So I make no apologies for that. Bill Maher uh, is, I, I've criticized because he's, a, again, he's a platform man who has, in my estimation, lost the plot and it began with his religiosity, you know, criticizing Islam without, you know, but failing to see the destructive nature inherent in Christianity and, and you know, what that's done over time. Um, if anybody wants to see maybe the most brilliant defense of Islam, by the way, because it's something that Bill Maher would, would have no capacity to argue with. Go watch Mehdi Hassan's Oxford debate on Islam. It's inspiring. It's incredible. That's what made, made Mehdi Hassan uh, a prominent figure. As far as Jamie Dimon, I don't think I've ever raked Jamie Dimon over the coals personally, because I think that as, as one of the titans of finance in this country, he is doing anything and everything at his disposal with, within the legal framework of, of our finance system and to keep things the, just the way they are, because it works for him. It works for his class. I believe, you know, Nathan, you're part of the banking class and and it works for the financial industry, but it doesn't mean that they should be, let's just say I have no problem with the way that they go about their business. It's just the problem of hiding the surplus capital that comes along with it and some of the destructive nature of the lobbying that they do in order to make things less competitive. And we're seeing it, we're seeing it right now. How is Jamie Dimon always there at the finish line when a bank goes under? Is because he's helping to dismantle the regulatory framework in this country, which is, you know, letting banks go under and then who benefits from it? Jamie Dimon, when he swoops in at the end of the day and, you know, plays the hero. So is that character assassination or is that just stating the obvious about the problems that are endemic to the capitalist society that, that exists without a regulatory framework that helps everybody? Yeah, in fa in fairness to Nathan, I can imagine the argument if 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 somebody said some shitty things about you, like if they were like Max is a fucking asshole, I hate the way he does his work, blah blah blah. Like knowing you as and someone I care about and I don't know if Nathan cares about all of these people, but let's say he does. Mm -hmm. You know, if let's say Bill, he loves Bill Barr, so it's like, mm -hmm. you know, hey, that's kind of my guy. If someone said that about you, I would take it like character defamation a little bit because you really can't separate the person from their actions in that way, especially a public figure. We don't know them personally. Mm -hmm. So all we have to go on is what they say and do in the public. So, I, you know, I'm not going to critique the way Kathy raised her children, if she has any. I don't fucking know. Right. But like, that, you know, that's her personal life. I don't know anything about it. But all, I, all we can say is, hey, this is a shitty thing to do as a public figure. Sure. Is that character defamation? Yeah. In, in terms of their public character. So that, that's one part of it. Yeah, assailing their public persona and and their deeds in the context of of their public, you know, what they do as a public figure yeah. is not the same thing. It's yeah. also par for the course. I mean, you put yourself out there. That's what you get. I'm willing to take all the criticism in the world if you can demonstrate how I've been destructive to. And, and I guess, you know, Nathan's point here is that I'm so one sided all the time. That's not allowing for broader discussions or a more, you know, em empathetic approach. 
obviously I think I'm pretty measured and pretty balanced. And when something's really terrible, I call it as it is, but I can understand why that, why it feels bad, especially if you said it to be like somebody, well, I've even been critical of Jon Stewart. I was going to say if somebody like, you know, went after Jon Stewart, I'd be like, wow, he's done more good than not or whatever. But I was, you know, critical of a couple of his recent pieces as well, like entertaining war criminals and, and interviewing Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice and putting some pressure on him, but really not. Yeah, I just for, you know, the part where Nathan says, like, it impacts the credibility of the research as it takes on the view of bias or vengeance. Like, we are biased. Mm -hmm. Everyone is biased. This is our bias. We're, ver we're a very left leaning podcast and left-leaning people. So yeah, we can both sides it if we want to, but it's never gonna be the same as if we actually thought those things. So yeah, it's a biased show. I mean, I, there's just, that's just right. all of news media. And I don't feel that it undermines the research because it's not like Max is, you know, writing like a really historical piece. Like the Clinton, the Clinton series, the Milton Friedman series, like Milton Friedman, we didn't really say a bad word about him until the very end of the show where we're like, and this is the effect. It was all about who he was, you know, what he stood for. And the same with Clinton. Max specifically didn't inject, uh, you know, I, I wanted to talk about fucking Epstein. I wanted to talk about how he was with Epstein all the time. And you said, no, you said, that's not the point of this. This is about the actual historical data. We didn't even talk about Lewinsky because that's honestly, that's a moral thing. That's not his political standards. Like. Yeah, it's wrong to cheat on your fucking wife, especially, and it's wrong to abuse your power with an intern and take advantage of, of people. But, like, it didn't affect his policies. So I actually think we do a pretty good job. Max more than me because I'm more of the, you know, I'm just like, fuck this person, you know. With well, you like, get to be the show's id, which sure, is, yeah. I think, useful. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't know that we, in the ones that we are really maybe more scathing, it's like a quickie, which is just kind of off the cuff, different mm -hmm. It's it's about something that's recent. So that's why those come out that way. I mean, I will say, did I go hard on Tucker? Like, well, yeah. Yeah. You know, because. But, but that's the thing. Exactly. Him, I believe, to be a terrible human and in a position of power. And so I think I Nathan agrees that Tucker is a bad person. And that's why Nathan doesn't have a problem with our, our coverage of Tucker. Right. So it's just like, you know, it. I get it. When you like somebody. If you like their politics, it hurts when someone says bad things about them because you don't want them to be flawed. So if you really like Bill Maher, if that's your guy, like, I get it. It sucks that we're going to shit on him or we have shit on him or we have shat on him. <laughs> um, but it doesn't it doesn't change anything. You can still like him, but like we can't we can't really un, undo this at that point at this point. And nor do we want to. I think the only person who's hasn't really disappointed me yet is and I'm sure I'm setting myself up for uh, you know catastrophe but I don't think Bernie has disappointed me yet and this is we could do a whole deep dive on where he's come up short over the years and you know people criticized him for just being a mouthpiece but not actually getting anything done having a very poor legislative record which I would also disagree with but at the same time I mean, I there's I mean, there's a couple of places I guess I could look at you know, like I would love to be really, really critical of his time and tenure because I think he's such an such an outsized figure, so important to this last generation of political thought, mm -hmm. you know, that he deserves probably some some like authentic scrutiny for how much he's you know, done or where he's where he's fallen short or what have you. But 
he, he's yeah, he'd be an interesting study. No politician is going to come up squeaky clean. It's people get mad. That's why, you know, AOC's name is just easy to, to rake through the coals when she has to, like, make a deal and compromise on mm -hmm. something. And then she's a sellout. And, you know, there's obviously other reasons, <laughs> her being a woman, a woman of color. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, politics is messy. And, but there's a difference between having to compromise on a bill to, you know, for the greater good or then just like outright being a fucking asshole and mm -hmm. trying to stop progress and reverse it. So I'm sure there are some things in Bernie's past that maybe we wouldn't agree with. You see she co-sponsored a bill with uh, Butthead? Yeah, I sent it to you. Right. Mm -hmm. It's impressive, huh? Hey, she had to be in a room with him. All right. So. All right. Um. Moving on, we have some general emails now. Piale compañeros en la lucha máximo. Noven Danueve Imani. Oh, 99. Noven Danueve Imani. I am a bit pissed concerning the anti-Mexican propaganda being circulated by the media in the United States. So Elaine is one of our wonderful, wonderful listeners in Mexico who uh, writes us frequently. She's talking about the fentanyl problem and how it's being portrayed as a Mexican problem specifically when obviously it's a lot more than that. One little highlight I wanted to read out because uh, I think it bears repeating and it's and it's so important because it's, it is lost in the coverage largely. As I've said before, the drug cartels here would not exist if Americans had decent gun laws and if they would help stop the flow of illegal arms into Mexico and if the American government would deal humanely with the problems of racism, poverty and hopelessness, which lead to addictions rather than just throwing people in jail. I think that was supposed to say homelessness, but. Hopelessness, poverty was... and homelessness. Oh, what's uh, OK? Because I mean, what is America going to do about ho hopelessness? I think. It's about the homelessness. Oh, I, yeah, I assumed it was like poverty and despair, which leads to addiction, not homelessness. But yeah, I mean, hopelessness and homelessness and all of it. Yeah, if we didn't have these systemic issues in the country, would the cartels be thriving in Mexico? Would the drug trade have taken off? I mean, there's enough research now to know that the the real core of the uh, of the cartels strength beginning in the 1980s were, you know, back channel deals with the CIA. So... You know, Google Gary Webb, and you can go down that rabbit hole if you haven't already, and I'm sure many of you have. But thank you, Elena, for putting that in to constantly put the mirror back up to remind us that, um, you know, sometimes the problems that we deal with here started here, and it's very convenient for us to blame other people. We traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. You hear me? It's coming from inside the house. I left the last line in the email for you. Thought you would enjoy that. Piale means hi in the Aztec language. That's how Elena started her email. Piale compañeros en la lucha. Noventa nueve. Noventa nueve. Why isn't that how I say 99 in Spanish? Hmm. Noventa nueve. Yeah, no, that's it. No. I'm slipping. I gotta go back to, uh, gotta go back to a Spanish-speaking country. I'm gonna move, okay? Bye. All right, let's go over to social media. What do we got on Instagram? Astro Vandalism said of this last episode, I knew this was coming between Max's boner for Taibbi and the news about Chomsky. This is a topic that needs tackling, but it's a skill we need to learn as a culture. We've lost the ability to separate largely beneficial work from the fallible and imperfect people that produce them. We're always so focused on the faults of others rather than what those people can and have contributed. I have a boner for Taibbi. Mm, sure, <laughs> definitely not. Not definitely not a boner for him and Greenwald and Hedges. Greenwald's husband passed away. That's pretty sad. 
Yeah. It's not going to be good for his mental status. No, clearly not. Clearly not. Sick for a long time. I didn't know. Yeah, sick. Uh, I didn't know that either, but he's, it was a stomach infection. And uh, sepsis? Never got better. They didn't say specifically, but it was a stomach infection. He got like nine months ago or something like that. He's been in the ICU for months, literally. Nice. Yeah, so. Well, good thing he's not here because he'd have a lot of hospital bills. Oh, yes. Yes, he would. Yes, he would. Uh, Astro Vandalism, really great to hear from you. Thanks for checking in. I think, I don't know how I feel about this. A few listeners have said, like, I feel like there's a difference between separating the art from the artist versus what Astro Vandalism is saying is, like, separating the beneficial work from the fallible and imperfect people. I know they're the same concept, mm. but I feel like they they say different things. Mm. Oh, we've got more to go on that. It's, uh, people were definitely leaning into that on YouTube as well. I mean, you, I have restraints. The fact that I didn't call out a section from a, an email before about this. What was it? Re, uh, <laughs> you want to get into it? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, Do you have it? Not to, um, not to put you on blast, Nathan S., but I just can't. I'm not going to call Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein people with sex addictions. That's mm. fucking ridiculous. Mm. I'm not discounting the fact that addictions exist and addiction is a mental illness. There's a difference between abusing your power and your privilege and your money and having an addiction. I don't think Harvey Weinstein had a, was a fucking sex addict. I think he was a disgusting man who took abuse of people. Jeffrey Epstein was a pedophile. That's also a mental illness, but he used it to traffic. He had an entire trafficking ring and he had a fucking island, which has been sold, by the way, and it's going to be a resort. So have fun there. Weird. These these are not people with with sex addictions. Like, come on, Nathan. I'm sorry. You're better than that. that was, I read that and I was, I was seething all weekend. <laughs> I was seething all weekend. Just no. Why are we Careful, so Nathan. why are we so quick to call these men sex addicted and they're not bad people? Well, fuck you. No. And not you, Nathan, but fuck you, the royal you. No. I don't I'm just not I'm not into that. Like, absolutely not. You don't get to say I have an addiction and then ruin hundreds and thousands of people's lives. Because you know what the a lot of the time, celebrities who we find out rape people, they're doing it because they enjoy it. You know, like R. Kelly, you think he couldn't have gotten women to sleep with him? Mm -hmm. Of course he could have. Mm -hmm. Most famous people can and not in a bad way. But like, yeah, most famous people are better looking than normal people because of, you know, the uh, standards of attraction we have. So like, of course, you, a hot, famous person. And then, you know, we do have the power dynamic aspect there. But a good amount of people who rape people and assault people, they can get consensual relationships. Mm -hmm. It's not a problem. Mm -hmm. That's why we have the, in they're literally called incels because the ones who quote, can't get people are claiming they're involuntarily celibate. It's like the guy from Gravity Payments that we talked about, right? I mean, just using his influence to super good looking guy who had money, oh, who yes. had a, a in the business community, at least, and then it kind of bled over. He had a, a, a level of fame. I wouldn't call fame. him super good looking, but that's. Well, he's a good looking dude, right? I mean, he was, no, you know, not and, to me. Okay. He just had a he had a face. He that, had a look. He had a he had a vibe to him. I didn't right? like the it, long hair or whatever it was. That's and, my preference. Um, but you know, certainly had the ability to have consensual relationships, and when even when entering into them, took on an abusive form of them because, like ninety nine saying, that's how he got off. That's yeah. a sickness. That's just that's just an asshole. It's not a good person. It's it's again indefensible. It, you know, there are pedophiles out there who are not offending pedophiles. Like 
There are people who go to therapy because they have pedophilic attraction and... And don't act on it. Yeah. And, you know, some people might say jail them anyway. But what are you going to do? There are people who have addictions who don't use their addictions. It, having a mental illness is, as Marcus from last podcast says, it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility. Mm. So if you know if you're predisposed to something, you know, if you if you have an addictive personality, like maybe you, you were a gambler and like, you know, you use you, you quit gambling. So you're using sex as a coping mechanism. Like if you're if your new addiction is sex addiction, it doesn't make it OK to just rape people like. It's just not the way the world works. And I'm sick of men defending other men like that and women defending other men. But I think, you know, I think it more often comes from that side of our gender spectrum. Here, here. Indeed. Well, let's keep going down this path uh, over on YouTube. OB said, I'm really glad you did this video and pointed to destroying patriarchal values as a necessary precursor to implementing a general system theory. But... In your conclusion, I think you missed an important caveat due to a certain blind spot, one that is, ironically, probably a little patriarchal in nature. People like Chomsky and Taibbi have at points in their careers disseminated truthful information and illuminated truth, writing from a place of authenticity about real things. That work can and should be separated from the bad choices or naive thought processes of the creators because that work illuminates truth regardless of who wrote it. When it comes to art, though, a person's experience with art is extremely subjective. Art is also emotionally evocative and designed to be on a level that is different than emotional appeals in a critique, deconstruction, or analysis. Because of this, as a woman, my relationship with some art is deeply affected by the actions of the artist, especially when abuse is involved that as a woman, I identify and empathize with so deeply that I cannot easily discard it. That's a really great and nuanced take, OB. I appreciate that. I think everybody that I had in my sights there was not an artist, but, you know, I was the one that began to draw the artist parallels to this. And I think that you you broke this apart in a in a really important way. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And even, you know, the Chomsky one, I think, is probably the most relevant here because now he's the one directly linked to an abusive to abusive people. So mm-hmm. one of them being an artist. Yeah. No, no. Don't worry. A great artist. Don't worry. Diane Keaton is still defending him. She just keeps talking about it. About Woody? Yeah. Mm. Just being like, oh, get over it. She literally said, get over it. Mm. Cool. Cool, Diane Keaton. Yep. Come on, Kay. What? What's that? Her character. In what? You know. No, I don't. You do. In Annie Hall? No. Then what? I wouldn't be quoting any. How the fuck do I know then? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm it's asking you. The Godfather. You know how naive you sound. What? Senators and presidents don't have men killed. Oh. Who's being naive, Kay? You know, they get so <laughs> mad. All these men. I'm not mad. I know, but every time you quote Godfather at me, you act like I'm stupid for not knowing it. No, I just, I was teeing you up for a, let me guess, The Godfather, because I only ever quote one It doesn't even come across my mind, has that? I don't think about The Godfather, ever. I only think about it because you talk about it so much. Sorry. Mass Defibrillator said, in case you didn't realize, Chomsky's entire linguistics career was funded by the DOD. He's previously been asked about this and basically said he does not see an issue with using the resource of the empire to maintain a position against them pointing out that Karl Marx did the same. He gives no weight to the notion of shooting yourself in the foot to gain some virtue. 
So I love this. Uh, it, Master Fibrillator has a much longer comment on YouTube. I would encourage everybody to go check it out. Uh, but I love this piece in itself because we, 99 and I talked a little bit about this in reference to how artists are funded a while back as well. And, you know, how, you know, artists as patrons of the state, and that's how they did a lot of their work. But sometimes those same artists will build in um, a little bit of defiance and using that money to go against the state is just sort of how stuff gets done. I'm not saying Chomsky is an artist, but using that to then counteract the state is tricky. It's dicey. And I don't know how I feel about it 100%. I think it's worth noting that Karl Marx, maybe less so, Karl Marx did the same to an extent, uh, but he also died penniless. He, di he died, uh, you know, an absolute pauper. So he wound up actually living the virtue of his work to an extent that a Chomsky is not. So I think Karl Marx is a different issue. I think I've given this uh, anecdote before, but a very good friend of mine was in the advertising industry for many, many years and had a lot of self-loathing about it initially, but he was an incredible artist and he was more of like, a, what do you call it? Like that prank type of arts and artist, like that does like a Banksy style. Like how would you characterize that type of artist? Like a, um, the words escaping me. I have a lot of words escaping me today. It's not great. Can you give me more, more of a um, description? Well, I would say like in the vein of a, of uh, of a Banksy, uh, you know, not pop art. The, not pop not, art, not like a street genre, art, like a like a um, performance. Yeah, performance street art, but one that kind of like defies the you know the the system. So he did a lot of those type of installations, and he would get paid a lot. He was a very very bright person who got paid a lot of money in the advertising industry and he took a lot of it and would do these like counterculture you know fuck the establishment type of installations all around new york city and it was it was brilliant and i asked him one time when we sat down i said you know how do you reconcile these two parts of your life and he basically said this in as many words and said i don't feel great i have to make a living it's an expensive city i happen to be very good at this thing but i don't feel great about being in it so i'd rather take their money and uh, deploy it in the only way I know how as an artist until someday I'm able to just survive on my art. And then also living authentically to that mission, he wound up actually just pulling out of the entire kind of like functioning society up here that he, he grew up in. And uh, just, what does Billy Joel say? And gave him the stand up in LA. He wound up just going out and had a stand up career and kind of lives paycheck to paycheck at this point and just gave it all up because he really couldn't deal with it after a while. Interesting stuff. But yeah, that's art requires a lot of art requires funding to live. Um, not everybody, if you want to just be a pure artist or you want to be a pure writer or you want to be a pure something or other, that's what makes, you know, what we do so challenging. And, you know, having to sit here hat in hand every week and ask for, you know, for funding and money from memberships and all these kind of things, this stuff's got to get funded. That's kind of the, the case with these independent platform people that get, I think, addicted to what gets funded and what gets membership and what what doesn't and uh that's that's part of the the, the very double-sided nature of of requiring the funding in order to be able to, to be who you want to be but anyway i'm nodding my head and then i's nodding there you go what did mike karamazov have to say so paraphrasing it seems that you're saying this isn't about the gender of these men it's about patriarchal structures that enable people to do these shitty things Sure, but the video is about three men. The title specifically mentions men. And seriously, the only women you could think of were J.K. Rowling and Ellen DeGeneres? 
offensive and hateful but lightweights when it comes to which women are fucking up the world. Y'all also did a glowing up uh, hero episode about AOC and she's had her lips firmly planted behind mainstream Democrats for a while now. I don't know what this means. <laughs> not in a not in a bad way. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm having trouble like parsing it. It's basically saying like, really, there are no women that are fucking up the world. The only examples you could come up with were J.K. Rowling and Ellen DeGeneres. And there's no there's no other woman that's doing terrible things. And and then what of AOC, who's supposed to be a progressive mm. hero? And gotcha. but she's just doing the bidding of Democrats. Couple of different things here. Uh, I think the narrative would have been much better served had I selected somebody like Thatcher. So, but completely willing to to to. She's also dead. So what's that? She's dead. She's the three people you picked for living. Uh, yeah, but in terms of like women doing destructive things, but the the thing to remember about Thatcher is that the reason that she was popular and in that position is that she exuded patriarchal norms she was just another mouthpiece for it so it's like it's like saying that um you know obama represents black culture and therefore black culture has now taken over the united states because he was the president it's like saying that having the first woman president would be so momentous if it was hillary clinton and the only reason that she made it as far as she did in as sick of a society as we have is because she also represented much of the standard cookie cutter patriarchal system that we've had for she was just she was just the best suited to continue to prop up the patriarchal structures in the system so yeah i could have used probably better examples these were more top of mind as 99 points out and living and and all of that as far as aoc having her lips firmly planted behind mainstream democrats for a while now i assume that means that she's kissing the ass of mainstream democrats that's an interesting topic and i know that uh mike karamazov is is not agreeing with this piece just in a wholesale basis and just doesn't like the narrative at all. But uh, AOC is a really different. She gets so much criticism from the far left and so and all the criticism from the middle and the far right. She just has a very at this point, she has a huge following and a very big base of support. But I think it's coming predominantly from people that would identify on the liberal end of the democratic spectrum. If the spectrum goes from blue dog Democrat to classic Democrat to liberal Democrat all the way to progressive, I think she's lost some traction on the far left because she of the progressive side, because she's a legislator and she's inside a system that won't allow her. She's not the president. She has to work within these structures. She has made some, I think she would, one of the things she's been really good at is explaining why she's gone and done certain things in the spirit of compromise along with some of the other uh, officials there. She's also come out and said, I probably wouldn't vote that way again if I had the opportunity today, having seen things play out. She's learning. She's going through the process. And I think she's way more thoughtful and considerate than a lot of other people that are you know, sitting in similar positions. But she's also com coming up against the hard reality that to be there, you also have to compromise. Look at look at Bernie's votes over the years. You know, Bernie voted for a couple of major pieces of legislation, not the least of which was the last big spending omnibus bill that we had, and then immediately went out and said, here's why I voted for it, because it has to pass, because it has these 10 things that I really love about it. And here's the stuff that absolutely mystifies me and why we can't move forward as a country, because the Democrats still won't consider these five things. I mean, that's all you can do as a legislator. And I think sometimes we try to turn these people that we love that represent our values into monarchs, and they're not. They just don't have that type of authority. They have to get by in the world. I think it's just a catch-22 because it's sort of 
uh, exactly what we're talking about in terms of like Gnome being like, like we're defending AOC for doing things we don't agree with, but not defending Gnome. So there's just no rhyme or reason. Yeah. Well, I think AOC had done some things that were like, really? And then went on and explained how she either couldn't get that done, didn't want to get it done, didn't want to throw the baby out the bathwater in the legislative process, or has actually come out on certain occasions and said, I fucked up. I, I shouldn't have voted for that bill. That's Chomsky is not capable of that, which we've established. Yeah. Right? So even that's a little bit of a different situation. Just as an, I was just as an example, but like the, the, the scenario of like, here's one person doing things we don't agree with. Here's one person doing things we don't agree with. So just getting ahead of the, the hypocrisy almost mm-hmm. of saying it like, yeah, it's all sliding scale of like, well, maybe if she, if she was, you know, dining with Epstein, I'd probably say, you know what, you're kind of dead to me, lady. <laughs> so uh, no one, the purists with her, I think, we said in the episode, they want to tear her down. I think that even on the, the far left, there's a, an unspoken misogyny that comes along with the criticisms of her that like in a Jamie Raskin world, doesn't get. There's an unspoken misogyny of definitely but i'm even even on the far left there's you know i think that people are are so so much more apt to take her to test than somebody that would uh oh the rokan is getting the business lately so that's interesting but uh most of the compare them to any white man i was gonna say most of the progressive end of the party is is it's diverse Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty heterogeneous. So yeah, because those are the people who understand what it's like being not to. I didn't mean to do a you people, but you know, people who are diverse who don't are are not white cis. They understand what it's like, or white cis male and female, but they understand that it's (laughs) there's a lot of shitty things happening, and you know their their cultures and their communities are getting the shit under the stick. So Mm -hmm. it's looking at the Republican and the Democratic intern photo thing from every year. It's like the best. Yeah. Amazing. Of course, all these people are white and mostly male. And of course, this is a diverse group on, on the left or whatever we are now as Democrats. But like, duh, it makes <laughs> fucking perfect sense. Um, just to round this out, a couple of uh, quick YouTube points. Vincent Kyle said, interesting. I do feel you didn't actually land on a point here. And maybe that's the point. Obviously, I believe patriarchy. And it steps on capitalism is the root issue here. And I've never been one to sanctify anything or deify anyone. 99 mentioned to me uh, early, 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 early in UNFTR's uh, days that my hero worship would uh, get me in trouble down the road. And uh, that is proving to be true. Wait, hold on. There's some breaking news about Tucker. Tucker Carlson announces plans to relaunch his show on Twitter. Right-wing extremist Tucker Carlson announced Tuesday he will relaunch his program on Twitter platform he praised as the only remaining large free speech platform in the world after Fox News fired him late last month. Carlson made the announcement in a video posted to the social media website, which Elon Musk acquired. Quote, speech is the fundamental prerequisite for democracy. That's why it was enshrined in the first of our constitutional amendments, Carlson said. Amazingly, as of tonight, there are not that many platforms that allow free speech. The last big one remaining is Twitter, which is where we are now. So. Hmm. Didn't see that coming. I didn't see that coming either. I do like this with CNN. They called him a right-wing extremist. That's kind of them. Should have seen that coming. Didn't see that coming. Should have seen that coming. That I didn't know so that quickly, Twitter though. had the infrastructure. Yeah, what does that look like on Twitter? Just, I mean. What does that, look, what does that even look like? Uh, from what I can remember, if you, 
well, he's changed all the rules, so I don't know. But like a regular account can't upload, a, couldn't upload a video past like two minutes and ten seconds. So I think just extend it for. Well, I think other accounts. I can't remember if it was verified or if you know some sort of paying whatever it was. They were allowed to upload longer videos, but you know Elon can make his enslaved staff do whatever he wants. Are you logging into Twitter to watch something long form? If you love Tucker, you are. It's actually probably a good move for us because uh, there is no way that the older, not to ageist, but the older demographic of of people who were interacting with his content on... on They're done. They're out. Yeah. Unless they repurpose it for... For YouTube, for Rumble and those places. But even still, that's like a, that's a, that's a heavy lift to get people out of the broadcast mindset, I, right? He, on Rumble, maybe on YouTube, they're going to flag him. There's, there's going to be, yeah, yeah. YouTube will, will roll out. They'll, they'll do something. It'll, it'll be like a, yeah. like COVID Rogan play, mm-hmm. you know, they'll do content warnings if they, I mean, that's wishful thinking, but I think there will be enough pushback if they tried to put the entirety of the show. And then. If you're going to just put it somewhere else, it doesn't Because you make could it. watch the entirety of his show on YouTube as it was broadcast through Fox. Like, he'd have to go. That was the Fox deal, though. The next step, right? What do you mean by that? Like, he'd have to go past where he was for YouTube to flag him. Because, I mean, he's he hasn't said anything more. I mean, I could understand him getting the sensitivity ratings or something like that. I can't see him necessarily being banned on well, YouTube, Well, now he's though, an right? independent platform man. Yeah, but like Matt Walsh is there, they might demonetize him there, but he'll still be able to amplify his message, which is kind of what he cares about the most. I just, I mean, yes, I just, I'm imagining huh. the uproar because the other people do, didn't have the following he has. Yeah. So even though they're saying as egregious shit, if not more egregious, I think because, because this is so in the, in the public eye right now, that if he were to make that transition that there would be enough of community sentiment against it, that something would happen, mm. that they'd have to do something. Because now he has, no one is holding him accountable. He can I, say- I think all they would basically, I mean, like, again, like all the, the the horrifically transphobic stuff that like a Matt Walsh has put up on there and incredibly racist, misogynistic stuff that Steven Crowder's put up there, they're not deplatformed, but they'll be demonetized and they'll have sensitivity- uh, filters put up there, you know, I understand. And I wish they like opt in. I wish to proceed kind of filters. I, w- I can't imagine that Tucker would be the, uh, would be the straw that breaks the band back. But he's more of a household name. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's obviously like, there's no, nothing in place right now, but I can imagine the public outcry about him would be much bigger. And also, like I said before, what would be the point of launching on Twitter if you're just going to put it on other platforms? So I think it'll probably yeah. stay there. Yeah, and we know how Elon feels about that, considering he didn't even want Tayyibi to write on Substack, right? Yeah, but... Wow. Jeez. Okay. How much do you think he's fucking paying him to do that? I don't know. Does he even have any money left? <laughs> probably just gave him fucking stock options. Well, he's got a lot of money left, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure how his debt holders are going to make out, considering he did a lot of that deal in debt. Can you... Can I officially delete my the Twitters, please? No. What? Just leave it up there. I don't want to. Is a little protest thing? Wouldn't it be bigger protest if we deleted our account? What, what would the thousand people that followed us on there do without us? Follow not doing us anything? somewhere else. I wasn't even happy that you tweeted the other day. No. It was against the entire point of not tweeting. I'm sorry. Thank you. 
Apologize to the unfuckers. I'm sorry, unfuckers. Uh, and then Jared F. closes out with, big fan. Have you considered additional long-form interview podcast on the video, ideally? Good way to build followers. Some ch some guests would be Chomsky, Wolf, Varifakis, Hedges, David Harvey, Saul Griffith, to name a few. Uh, I got a list. I got a list of people that I really, really would like to interview and be on the show. Um, time and technical issues that I've built up in my mind have kept me from really pursuing this. 99 is here and at the ready to make all of this happen. It's just about me getting over myself. But I will say that a lot of the interviews that I've done in the past, I've been very disappointed in myself. So it's not something that I've been all that anxious to jump right back into with names like this. I would kill to interview Giannis Varifakis. I've met and interviewed in a different forum, Rick Wolf before. He's wonderful, so easy to talk to because it kind of guides itself. I'm not sure what I talked to Chris Hedges about, but uh, I have a whole again. I have a whole list of people that I think would be it would be great to have on the show. I think I got lucky with Danny Bessner and Derek Davison because uh, I had a handful of questions. I think we only got to like you know three or four of them, but they were just so proficient that they were able to really you know because you gotta. You got to be able to carry that conversation if it's not going in the direction you want. And if you're not prepared for an interview, what I really, really dislike when people start doing interviews is when they're not totally prepared for them. And the way that I like to prepare for things is to be overly prepared for them. And it takes a lot of time. And then there's a technical piece of it with the video that I'm not, you know, I, I, I've wrapped my head around and I think I, we have a good game plan for it, but uh, we'll see. But yes, Jared F. would love to get there. It is on the roadmap. Certainly, it will happen this year. Uh, I just don't know when. So what about donations? And then we'll close this out finally. Sure. So Chappie Choose member. So this is John, Swedish John. Thank Otherwise, you. I let my membership lapse here to rectify the situation. Peace out and keep up the great work. Nice. You have to keep reading when I took my glasses so. <laughs> off. Pirate Jenny is now a member, joining in honor of my 69th birthday. Wow. So putting birthday. the boom in boomer. Love you guys and solidarity forever. Nathan Sirs bought a coffee, $5 for the long email I sent. I, he repents. It's like tithing, you know. Always does that. Yeah. It's so funny. I, well, I, I feel like I should send him money for yelling back. <laughs> at I'm like, let me refund you. Um, and then finally, Specker bought five coffees for 99 for keeping Max real on the latest post show musings for reminding us all to break out of our binary box. Good stuff. Thank you for calling that out. And uh, you didn't have to pay us for the privilege of doing that. But uh, thank you, Specker. Specker's been lighting it up on YouTube, by the way, with a lot of great comments and keeping things flowing. So uh, thank you for doing that, Specker. Appreciate you there. Are you going to give me the money after this? Yeah, I'll give it to you right now. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, geez. God, I know my wallet on oh. Yeah, right after this. Right you, after I have this. Venmo, Cash App. I can get a Square account. Okay, sure. That's, I mean, it said for 99 Yeah, no, that's fine. me. You bet coming right at you. I don't see why it shouldn't. All right, unfuckers. That's a wrap. This is long. Should be a wrap. I'll catch you this weekend. Bye. You should have the last word. They can't see me because you're just, you're just staring now at them. It's awkward, right?